I'm here in the Hope Not Hate archive room. This otherwise completely ordinary small room with kind of oppressive white lighting and, and dust everywhere actually houses our archive, which is, uh, I think, one of the, the best archives of fascist and anti-fascist material anywhere in the country, possibly anywhere in Europe, actually. We have these huge shelves uh, that line the walls here um, that holds hundreds and hundreds of boxes of archive material dating back to the 1920s, some, some of it even slightly earlier, uh, and dates all the way through to today, or to yesterday, should I say. And um, we've got filing cabinets full, we've got 12 or 13 filing cabinets of stuff as well, which again houses mainly kind of fascist material. And we have tens of thousands of documents here, some of which are nowhere else in the world. And we've got tens of thousands of newspapers and magazines, uh, most of which are from the far right. But also we've got uh, boxes upon boxes of anti-fascist material, not just from the United Kingdom, but from all over the world, especially across Europe. And it's a really, really special room. You know, it, it looks like any other, but actually on these shelves is the history of our movement. And it's the history of the movement that we've spent uh, our lives fighting against, I guess. So in these hundreds of boxes uh, that are surrounding us now is basically everything you can imagine that's got to do with the far right. It uh, goes back a hundred years and it's got everything from the newspapers they produce, the magazines they produce, the leaflets they produce during election campaigns. There's thousands, there's you know dozens of boxes of British National Party election campaign stuff. Um, but there's also the stuff that goes around that when it comes to the far right, the, the letters they wrote. Um, some of the campaigns they ran, newspaper clippings about them, um, you name it, we've got it. But also these parties and individuals that we monitor produce more than just campaign literature and, and newspapers. So we've also got the stickers they made, um, the posters they produced, in some cases the VHSs and the videos and the DVDs they made or the music they made. So there's a big collection of kind of far-right music here, which is hundreds of CDs and tapes and, and vinyls of, of kind of major neo-Nazi bands around the world. And it's not just British material we keep. We have stuff from all over the world, anything to do with the far-right that we can get our hands on, we've collected. And then finally, some of the stuff that they've produced to try and raise money, so things like merchandise, for example. And the idea is is that we have a collection of far-right material outside of the far-right, something that people like ourselves, anti-fascists, but also researchers and journalists and academics can one day look at and use uh, and to better understand the movement that we're fighting against, to have a collection of material that you don't have to go to the far-right to look at. It's all there in one place that we can access and people can access without any risk or danger. And then finally, we've also, we kind of keep the history of our own movement here. So we've got um, box upon box of anti-fascist material. So stuff produced not just by Hope Not Hate, but anti-fascist groups dating back all the way again to the 1940s. Um, that could be stickers, posters, magazines, um, again, VHSs, all that sort of stuff. It's, this is a collection of our own movement's history as well. So in one sense I can understand why, why some people would obviously find this massive collection of racist and hateful material so horrible that it should just be destroyed. But in truth, of course, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on at Hope Not Hate is, is understanding the far right. We don't just dislike them, we dislike them because we know how dangerous they are and how awful they can be. And these shelves are lined with evidence of that and they help us better understand the people that we fight against. Um, it's not just we see them and we think that we're, they're horrible. We can documentally prove 
dating back a hundred years, why this movement is so dangerous, why the ideas that they have are so bad and can have such a negative effect on society. Many of the new far-right movements that emerge at times, there's very little that's new about them. It's often like the dressing up of old hatred, old politics in a kind of digital age. And this archive allows us to prove that. It allows us to go back and say what this person is saying now is the same as what that person was saying then. Um, what this movement is trying to achieve now and the politics that they're trying to push is the same as the hateful politics that was being pushed in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. And we can prove that. And so it's really, really important to have this, even though it's horrible and the collection is of vile and miserable stuff, it's so important that we keep it because we can learn from it. So with the idea in mind that you know, we can learn from what's on these shelves and kind of illuminate things that we're still talking about and researching today. We thought we'd do a new series called From the Archive. And basically the idea is, is that we're going to go back into our archive, look at these historical objects, and see what they can tell us that's useful to today. And to start that off, I've gone back in, and I've gone back into one of our earliest boxes. This big box here is probably the biggest box in the archive. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge, great thing, the size of a big broadsheet newspaper, and it holds a lot of the stuff from the 1920s, uh, the, our earliest, some of the earliest material we hold. And what I've picked out for this first in the series is a series of small newspapers produced in 1923 to 1925 from a really, really horrible British anti-Semitic organisation called the Britons. Um, this was a group set up in 1919 by Henry Hamilton Beamish, um, and they are one of the most important organisations for understanding anti-Semitism in Britain, but also, more specifically, conspiratorial anti-Semitism, something that we still wrestle with today in this age of conspiracies and misinformation. And so I thought it would be interesting to pick out, to start this series with, with some of the oldest material we have, and something that just shows, even though it's 100 years old uh, in some cases, it's still extremely relevant and, and shows us something really important and illuminates something that we're still fighting today. So in front of me here is, is our small collection of newspapers from or produced by the Britons in the 1920s. Uh, the first one's from about 1923 and then they, we've kind of got a series of them that go throughout the 1920s. Um, Along the top here is, is the title, of course, which is uh, The Hidden Hand, and then just under that is, is the subtitle, Jury Uber Alice. Jury, overall, if you will, is the original name of the newspapers they produced, actually, in February 1920, but we don't have a copy of that. But it changes its name to The Hidden Hand in September 1920. And... Basically, they're about half the size of an A4 piece of paper. Um, they're obviously dog-eared. These, these pieces of paper are 100 years old and extremely rare, actually. Estimates from the, if you look at special branch information from the period, kind of police reports on the Britons, they estimated that they produced only about 150 of these. So the fact that we still have one, that it's still here in relatively good order, and we've still got a few of them in good order, um, is pretty remarkable. That's not to say they haven't aged. Uh, the pages are extremely browned the corners are disheveled and this the the staples in some cases have actually completely rusted away in the last hundred years and just left a kind of brown residue mark of where a staple once was and then over here to the right is is a separate set of documents 
um, also produced by the Britons. Um, again, essentially, they're called the British Guardian, um, and that's what they changed the name of their newspaper to in May 1924. Uh, these are slightly larger, and they're in really, really uh, great condition. These are A4 newspapers. Um, they look like they could have been produced yesterday. It's remarkable, uh, and yet they're actually from 1924. So we've got this febrile national moment where you've got the kind of ravages of war, mass death, and the kind of recovering from the First World War, coupled with this kind of rising fear of spreading Bolshevism. And then, really importantly, if you're trying to understand anti-Semitism in this period, is the role that a document called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion plays in spreading conspiratorial anti-Semitism, and how, for some people, this document explains Bolshevism and the Russian Revolution. This is a kind of fabricated anti-Semitic text that essentially purports to describe a secret Jewish plan for global domination. Um, it was produced in Russia back in 1903 and it was translated into multiple languages and disseminated internationally in the early parts of the 20th century. And in some ways it's done more than any other document to spread the idea that the, the kind of Jews control and run the world. It's been called the warrant for genocide um, later on because it was so central to understanding Nazi anti-Semitism and, and kind of what happened in the Holocaust in some ways. This document obviously gets proved to be a forgery. People start to see it as a forgery, but not everyone does. Many people believe it explains what they're seeing in the 1920s in the United Kingdom. And the Britons are really, really important for this. If you look at the hidden hand in the newspapers that we have here in the archive, they mirror all of the themes that you'll find within the protocols of the uh, elders of Zion. The same idea that there is a secret Jewish plot to control the world, to run the banks, uh, and to bring down the British Empire, or to bring down any force that stands in its way. So into this kind of mix or this context I guess straight after the First World War is when the Britons emerges. It's launched in 1919 by a guy called Henry Hamilton Beamish. Um, now Beamish is certainly obviously one of the most notorious anti-Semites of the age but probably one of the most notorious and important British anti-Semites of the 20th century and beyond. Um, a really central figure for creating and disseminating conspiratorial anti-Semitism. Through to this day uh, his stuff still pops up. But he himself is quite an interesting character. He, he comes from a very distinguished family. His father was a rear admiral. Um, his brother was an MP. And he himself has this kind of empire story. He spends time in Alaska as a, as a fur trader. He's a tea grower in Ceylon. Um, and then he becomes a conspiratorial anti-Semite in earnest during the Boer War, by all reports. And then he goes and fights in the First World War, and then straight after the First World War, he comes out and creates the Britons in 1919. And he creates both the organisation the Britons, and eventually there is the creation of the Britons Publishing Society. And while the Britons only lasts a few years during the 1920s and fades away and, and fails to attract any big numbers, the publishing uh, side of the, the operation becomes one of the most important elements of British anti-Semitism for decades. It lasts all the way through to the 1970s, and becomes the central hub for producing and disseminating the protocols in the United Kingdom. By the time it all kind of wraps up in the 1970s, which is decades after the death of Beamish himself, who died in Rhodesia many, many years before, they'd produced 85 editions of the protocols, meaning that they did 
pretty much more than anyone else in the United Kingdom, to keep that flame alive of conspiratorial anti-Semitism. And so the documents that we keep in the archive here are just a snapshot, a kind of a glimpse into the Britons, a kind of a moment, a small bit of what they produced, of this much vaster, much bigger kind of back catalogue of information created by this organisation. As I say, much of which is still talked about in extreme far-right circles today, not just in the UK, but you can find some of this stuff circling around the international far-right as well. One of the things that's most remarkable about this this set of documents is what it shows us about the early Nazi party and the relationship that Beamish and the Britons had with the early Nazi party. Uh, there's a couple of things that come out really strongly. One, one is actually about a meeting that Beamish had in 1923 in January with Adolf Hitler in Munich. And it's worth remembering that 1923, we're talking about really, really early Nazi party. Um, This is, at this point, uh, much of the British anti-Semitic movement would have been anti-German or not interested in Germany, partly because of the First World War. But Beamish was not like that. Beamish was uh, interested in what was happening in Germany and is writing about this small collection of anti-Semites in Munich, decade before they come, you know, they rise up and take power when Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor. And it actually tells the story, they, they quote this uh, Viennese newspaper article, uh, and it tells the story of when Beamish went to Germany himself, and he meets Hitler, and he gives an anti-Semitic speech. Uh, and it's just this remarkable glimpse into kind of transnational anti-Semitism of the period. And also how prescient it is that obviously Hitler goes on to become the Adolf Hitler we know now, but at this point would have been a relatively unknown figure. And uh, he gives a speech, and the speech is translated at the time by this guy called Dietrich Eckhart, who is in many ways an, a mentor to Adolf Hitler. And he ran his own Volkish group, a so-called Volkish group called the Thule Society, which was this really important ideological tributary into the Nazi party. And this story is told through this kind of clipped Viennese newspaper article in these newspapers. And then it also reports when little things happen in the Nazi party, which are really interesting. So... There's an article here which talks about uh, a new branch, a small branch being opened in Murnau in, in Germany. And again, this is like irrelevant at the time, of course. This is a tiny branch of an irrelevant party being run by a nomarch. But of course, it's really interesting because 10 years later, they're not a nomarch. 10 years later, this is the Chancellor of Germany. And, and 10 years after that, of course, uh, we end up in Auschwitz. So when looking at these documents, it's really obvious and clear why they're nasty and why they're dangerous. You know, the anti-Semitism is writ large across the headline of the, the whole newspaper. But it's easy to see why some people would say, you know, well, yeah, that's bad, but conspiracy theories more generally aren't that much of a problem. The truth, of course, is actually that conspiracy theories more broadly do pose a real problem. I mean, we monitor them on a daily basis at Hope Not Hate, and we're really worried at the moment about an explosion of conspiratorial thinking in the United Kingdom and people engaging with conspiracy theories and online conspiracy groups. And often the problem is is that at the core of most conspiracies, or many conspiracies, there is a scapegoat, there is a target. There is a, a really difficult question being answered with a really simple answer. And that answer is often, it's not your fault, it is someone else's fault. Now, in many cases, of course, and often that always comes back to there is a secret plot that is doing bad things. And that's only usually one step from that is that secret plot is run by the Jewish community or by secret Jewish control. So the conspiracy theory movement is often, I think, worth looking at it or conceptualizing it like a bookshelf. At one end, you might have something that you think is relatively harmless, like, you know, 
um, did we land on the moon? But the last book on that shelf is invariably always something like Holocaust Denial and Jewish World Controller. And people work their way along that bookshelf, engaging with more and more extreme content. So don't write off conspiracy theories as amusing or funny or irrelevant because quite often, while they can be that, underlying it can often be quite a nasty, pernicious and often anti-Semitic base. Someone might start looking at kind of conspiracy content on YouTube, online, and go down a rabbit hole towards more and more extreme content, uh, to more and more anti-Semitic content, and it becomes a way people get involved in the far right. And, and that's why conspiracies are so dangerous, but it also takes us back to these documents, takes us back to understanding why anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are so dangerous, and why it is that um, we should never write off conspiracy thinking or conspiracy channels are irrelevant or too small to care about. If you look at these documents, they were produced in 1923 by, at the time, a uh, someone who was in irrelevance, running a small organisation with a tiny print run of just 500. And in these pages, he goes and talks about a meeting where he meets another irrelevant person in Germany, Adolf Hitler. He goes and speaks at a small meeting in front of very few people, and it's picked up by small regional newspapers. And it would have been easy to write it off as irrelevant. In fact, many did, of course, write it off as irrelevant. But just 10 years after this, almost to the day, Hitler becomes the Chancellor of Germany. And then just 10 years after that, the gas chambers at Birkenau went into operation. Just in 20 years, these newspapers show the story. These were actually a warning from history. These weren't an irrelevant piece of history. They were a warning that we didn't listen to. And that's why it's so important when we look at conspiracy work now and anti-Semitic conspiracies now, is that we don't write off anything that's too small or too irrelevant because all of it is a warning. We know where this leads. It starts on the pages of the hidden hand in a small British conspiracy newspaper and it finishes in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. So thank you very much for listening to the first in our new series uh, from the Hope Not Hate archive. The idea is that this will be a series going forward where different people from within Hope Not Hate go back into our archive and, and have a dig through these boxes and find interesting and exciting and, and important stories um, that shed light on things that are happening to this day. Um, and that will be both from the fascist side but also from the anti-fascist side. What can we learn from our own history? There's an article online, so I'd, I'd encourage you to go and check it out, where I write a lot more about the history of these documents and tell the story of Beamish and the Britons as well. So please kind of have a look at that and share that. And also, yeah, get in contact if there's something you're really interested in. If there's something that you're wondering what we could learn from elements of history that we might have in our archive, drop us an email. We always want to hear it. And then finally, storing these documents is expensive. Uh, you know, and looking after this sort of history, uh, it doesn't come for free and it takes a huge amount of time and effort on our part as a research team. So um, I'm always told to ask, and I'm, in this case, I'm really happy to please do join things like the Hope Action Fund um, or, or make a donation that allows us to kind of keep this history because it's not just our history, of course, this is the history uh, of our whole movement as well, that we feel like we, we look after it on behalf of all of our supporters and all anti-fascists all over the world that are interested in this stuff. Um, so please do help us. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.